0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Tyler. It is a good pleasure to be here and to share with you this morning. Uh, And I'd like to welcome you uh, to our series on the book of 3 John. If you're a visitor, you've come at a great time this morning because today marks uh, the first talk in our series. And of course, it also happens to be the last and the only talk in our series. Because as you know, the book of uh, 3 John is one of the two shortest books in the whole Bible. It's uh, an exercise in God-breathed efficiency. And so this morning we have the privilege of working through an entire book of the Bible in a single sermon. So you're welcome to follow along with me as I read uh, this letter aloud. Third John is right at the end of the New Testament, just before Jude and uh, before Revelation. The third letter of John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Greet the friends, every one of them. I thank you and uh, let's pray. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your letter to us. We ask now that as we look deeply into your word, that by your spirit you would apply what you're saying to our hearts, that we might understand your love for us and love you and love one another for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, for those of you that uh, know and and have met my wife, Penny, you'll know that um, apart from saving me. By the gracious death of his son, God's greatest grace to me has been giving Penny to me as my wife. We met in 1999. I was a senior uh, in America at high school and she was a Rotary Exchange student. And for a year, we enjoyed a great friendship and uh, kept in contact when Penny came back to Australia. And uh, her father made the fatal mistake of taking uh, their family back to America to visit uh, her friends there again. And that's when Uh, Penny and I became a couple, and uh, we had a year apart before I came to Australia, and we were married in 2003. And every single day uh, for that year that we were apart in 2001, one of the sweetest sounds to my ears, and you might remember it too, think back, was the sound of a dial-up modem remember the joy of that sound the beeps and whistles and whooshes and if if you're under boys in the front row here 15 or 16 I think you haven't got a hope of of understanding what's dial up but um, that in 2001 was joy to me because it meant every time I was online that I could get an email an update from Penny to hear how she was going and how her Christian walk was doing and Faithfully, we wrote to each other back and forth almost every single one of those 365 days that we were away. And uh, a tree died so that I could print out every single one of those emails that she wrote to me. So I wonder, have you ever waited longingly for a report from someone you loved? Well, you know I have. And so did the author of 3rd John. So let's think just a moment about the context of this letter. So the elder, the, the author of this epistle, has a dear friend named Gaius. And we're not sure how far back their friendship goes, but it's clearly a very precious friendship to the elder. And while he and Gaius are spiritually close, they're separated by not insignificant distance. And so you wonder how will the elder keep updated on how Gaius Is going obviously Gaius typing a walking in the truth into his Facebook status update and uh, Gaius, um, sorry, and the elder hitting like is a bit out of the question. Um, The elder relied on on old-fashioned means, on letters, parchment, and people to keep him updated on how his friends, including Gaius, were going. So imagine that elder, he's a wise, faithful Christian man living each day, hoping and wondering how in the world his dear friend Gaius is going, And imagine then the gladness and the rejoicing that he experiences when one day a group of Christians, or the brothers, as the Bible calls them, arrive at the elders' doorstep and they deliver great news about how Gaius is going. Gaius walks in the truth. And so now we're reading here in our Bibles the elders' brief written response to those Christians' report about Gaius. And so while the letters addressed to Gaius, it's Scripture, and so by the Holy Spirit it speaks to us too. And so this morning we're going to see that specifically, this letter tells us that two characteristics of faithful Christians are walking in the truth and love. Just have a look with me at verse two. The elder writes, "Beloved." I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, how in the world can this elder have confidence to write that he knows that it goes well with Gaius' soul? In other words, that Gaius is going well Christianly. Well, he knows because of the report of the testimony from that group of Christians, from the brothers what do those Christians testify about? Well, they testify about two things. Look with me at verses 3 and 6. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And verse 6, you testify to your love before the church. They testify that Gaius is walking in the truth, and they testify to his love for others. Two characteristics of faithful Christians are walking in the truth and love. And so, first of all, walking in the truth means gospel faithfulness. And it means, and it brings great joy. So look with me at verses 3 and 4 again. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you were walking in the truth And I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth The elder mentions walking in the truth twice. And so we must ask ourselves. What does uh, the author of this letter? What does this part of scripture mean when it speaks about the truth and how in the world are you supposed to walk in it? Well, according to the very uh, brief and unscientific research I recently uh, conducted on the internet, I just used the most common word in the English language four times in this sentence. The. It's crucial to our language, isn't it? It's one of the first words my son learned to read. It's a definite article and it's the direct opposite of any. The refers to something precise and unambiguous. And so when the elder speaks about the truth, he means something very specific. So let's get very specific. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Thomas is talking to Jesus and he's a little bit upset. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See what Jesus does? He calls himself the truth. Jesus is the truth, and it's only through him that we have access to the Father. Now come back in your Bibles to uh, the letter of 1 John. I'm sorry we're flipping around a little bit. 1 John. Just a few pages back from 3 John. And we're told very clearly in this letter that God is not a liar. It is the opposite of his nature. God tells the truth. He gives true testimony. And in verses 21 and 22 of 1 John chapter 2, we're reminded that we know the truth. It's that Jesus is the Christ. And if you look at chapter 5 of 1 John, verses 11 and 12, we read that this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life that's the truth that God gave us eternal life and it's in Jesus Christ it's not subjective it's not relative it's the authoritative truth as defined in scripture and so think just a minute how blessed are we that the truth is true that we've been given it how blessed Good is real, solid, you can count on it, truth. How good and reassuring is it to know that God has given us eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. So now that we know what the truth is, how do we go about walking in it? We'll flick forward a page or two to the second letter of John, verse 9. In John's second letter, verse 9, he writes that, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So to walk in the truth means to abide, to live in, to continue in the teaching about Jesus Christ. Walking in the truth means that we do not advance. We do not go beyond the truth. You see, to innovate is a mistake. We don't make up strange rules or doctrines. We don't try and add anything to the Bible. No, we stay on Scripture. And on the other hand, walking in truth also means not falling short of the truth. I remember this quotation from a preacher in America named Joshua Harris. He said that it is not humble to be hesitant where God has been clear and plain it is not humble to be hesitant where God has been clear and plain so we do the truth a disservice when we hesitate when we're ashamed of the truth or when we refuse to teach or confess the entire truth may we not stray in any direction but humbly walk in the truth now, apart from um, Tony Veal, I'm not sure if there's any cycling fanatics here, but uh, if there are, you might have been like me, staying up late a few nights to, to watch some of the Tour de France. And I couldn't help but think, watching that peloton just glide down those ro- uh, roadways in a tight bunch past that gorgeous countryside, that's a bit of a picture of walking in the truth. Those guys on their bikes, they know the course They're stuck together. They're not veering in any direction. Left, right, forward, back. They know where they're going. They know the course. They're staying on the path. And that's what we're to do. We're to humbly walk in the truth. And the truth mattered to the elder, didn't it? He's very concerned about it. And so the truth should matter to us. We stand for truth by walking in it. And we walk in truth by maintaining a steadfast commitment to the original message of the gospel as it's here in the Bible. Walking in the truth means Bible, gospel, faithfulness. And you know that walking in the truth also brings great joy. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4 of Third John. He rejoices and has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth. If you thought, why does the elder have so much joy that his children are walking in the truth. Well, it's because the elder is far-sighted. He has a proper perspective because he knows that walking in the truth is a matter of life and death. Remember what we read in 1 John chapter 5. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have When all is said and done, what really matters is what you did with the truth. What you did with Jesus. And you know that walking in the truth is also a a fundamentally unselfish thing to do. It's a joy to others. Christian joy is unique because it's so corporate. You know, I can't share Dwayne's joy of kite surfing because I'm still confused if it's the the same or different to windsurfing and I don't know the first thing about either. And I can't share Matt's joy of playing the guitar and singing because I play the guitar and sing in keys you've never even heard of before. But I can share a greater joy with Dwayne and with Matt and with all of you who are Christian and who walk in the truth. You see, the joy of being a member of God's family and a part of a walking in truth community is unmatched. Do you understand that when you walk in truth, you are such a great encouragement to me, to the church, to your children, to your Christian family and friends. If you want to know how to be a real encouragement to others, how to bring joy to others, what the source of greatest joy is, look right here. It's walking in truth. The truth. Uh, last year, you might know that Penny and I and our family spent a year in America uh, just catching up with my folks and Riley's back there, and we had a great time. Uh, and over the summer, we went out to California to see my aunts and uncle and, and cousins there, and we took my grandfather, my grandpa Bachman, uh, whom Elijah's named after, with us. And we had a great time just reminiscing with him and with um, with our family there. And I remember. Uh, the Saturday evening that we were there, we were sitting in the living room and, uh, and just having a great time fellowshipping together. We're all Christians. We've got young children. So there's generations of Christians represented there. And uh, just before my cousin and his wife and their little daughter got ready to go, we, we just stood up together, and, um, and I think my Uncle Mark prayed for us. And, and then he turned to Grandpa and he said, Grandpa, is there anything that you'd like to say? And Grandpa stood there, looking at this circle of his family with tears in his eyes, and he said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. Praise God. So how does this impact on the priorities and aims that we have for ourselves and and for our children? How important is walking in truth to you? You know, what are we praying for our children? The author doesn't say, the elder doesn't say, I've got no greater joy than my child made the state under 16 footy team. I've got no greater joy than he received a terrific semester one report from school that he's got a great job up north. You know, all those things are fine, but he writes and the Bible says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So church, when you pray for each other, for your family, for your friends, for yourselves, for our church. Let's especially pray that we might continue to walk in the truth. And you know, walking in the truth does not only bring joy to fellow Christians, it also brings joy to God. How do you think the King of Kings, the author of life, the God who holds the cosmos in the palm of his hands feels when even one person, Repents and says sorry for walking in sin and turns to walk in truth. Let's be reminded of the uh, the Bible reading that Duane read out for us earlier. If you want to follow along on the screen, you can or look in your Bibles. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who don't need repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. At the direction of God, heaven bursts with joy when a person repents from walking in sin and turns to walking in truth. Walking in the truth brings great joy. And secondly, truth walkers are characterized by love, They reject what's evil and they imitate what is good. You know, one of the, uh, the really fascinating things about biblical letters like 3 John is that they give us a little glimpse into the life and working of the early church, right? And as we've seen, and we'll see more of, a lot of those little pictures are full of joy and love. But sometimes, they're not. So see, for example, verses 9 and 10 of our letter of 3 John which recount the tragedy of Diotrephes. The elder says that he wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not consent with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. And he summarizes in verse Eleven, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. I'm sure if the elder could have, if this was an email or something, he would have put these verses in flashing light, saying, Gaius, warning, stay away. Don't think for a second that Diotrephes' actions are from God. So what was it? What was so heinous about Diotrephes that prompted the elder to single him out in this letter to Gaius? Well, there are six behaviors that the elder identifies that I'm sure as we look at them, you'll agree with me that they're just as effective at hindering Christians from walking in the truth and enjoying loving fellowship today as they were almost 2,000 years ago. Look at verse 9. The elder characterizes Diotrephes as one who likes to put himself First. He doesn't say, Diotrephes, who likes to be first in the lunch line, or Diotrephes, who likes to take his turn first when we play Monopoly. No, he says, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, full stop. What a tragic assessment. You see, Diotrephes has put himself first, and now there's no room for Jesus at the top as the head. And it's not surprising, then, what happens? Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority. Diotrephes has ceased to submit to the truth, to the authority of God's word and the rightful authority of the faithful teachers of God's word. He's established himself as his own authority, as judge, jury, and executioner. He does what's right in his own eyes. And we know from the Old Testament book of Judges, That's the chief symptom of a man without a king. And of course, Diotrephes has no real king because he, as verse 11 put it, has not seen God. And verse 10 goes on to condemn Diotrephes for talking wicked nonsense. He's gossiping maliciously about fellow Christians. And as if that's not enough, he refuses to welcome the brothers Diotrephes rejects the opportunity to provide hospitality to the traveling Christian preachers and then he goes on and prevents others who want to welcome their fellow Christians and he boots them out of church he sets himself against Christian mission and he puts the stopper on any Christians who would desire to love each other he was unkind, he was proud rude and self-seeking in summary Diotrephes didn't love just see First Corinthians 13. He was more concerned for the glory and the power of his name instead of the name of Jesus Christ. And so the church, the body of believers that Diotrephes was associated with, was in danger of collapse. And you know that one of the quickest ways to sabotage a church and to quell sincere Christian fellowship is to simply yield to our selfish, gossiping, power-hungry tendencies. That's all it takes to turn relationship to ruin. And so the elder says, and may we all hear, do not imitate that. If the scriptures rebuke Diotrephes and his actions, then we too must repent and rebuke those own tendencies and ourselves people who walk in the truth reject evil and they imitate good notice again verse 11 the elder says whoever does good is from God do you know that our ability to love and to imitate good is God ordained it's God authored it's God enabled it's because we are born of God Gaius is clearly from God and let's have a look about the testimony about him in verses 5 and 6 The elder writes, It's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You see, the elder commends Gaius for his hospitality, right? He's shown the teachers of the truth, genuine Christian love, and he urges him to continue doing it. And even though those Christians are strangers to him, Gaius spends himself for them. He generously loves them. And the portrait that we're given of Gaius here is of a person who's ordered his life in accordance with the truth, with the gospel. Gaius is faithful to the truth and he's faithful in his love for Christians. And his example is one worth following, isn't it? And the elder also uh, mentions the benefit of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look with me at verse 8. He says that, Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You see, Christian hospitality and generosity is a profound act of love. It's costly, but it's absolutely worth it. And I'll tell you, in just the six months that Penny and I have been a part of this community, we have experienced firsthand your hospitality and your generosity towards us and what a difference that has made for us how thankful and how grateful we are for you so thank you you know the personal uh, flourishes in this letter the bits that sometimes we overlook between the elder and guys they also give us a good example of Christian love and fellowship let me point out just a few quick things notice that four times in this letter the elder addresses Gaius as beloved they are dear friends he specifically mentions in verse 1 that he loves Gaius in truth meaning that their mutual friendship exists and flourishes because of the gospel and it's for the gospel and in verse 2 we read that the elder prays for Gaius and that he's personally concerned for him for his physical and his spiritual welfare And in verse 14, we read of the elder's desire to see and speak with Gaius soon. I mean, remember that talking face to face back then was a bit more complicated than it is today. He can't Skype Gaius. The elder can't take the bus or the train. I'll be traveling by foot, by two or four, by walking or riding a beast of burden to meet Gaius. And he means, Gaius, I'm going to sacrifice days of my time and my effort in order to come and just hang out with you. The elder has invested himself in this relationship with Gaius and he's determined to see him. And so these little pen strokes of information in a wonderful picture, a great example of the type of loving relationship that's built on the common foundation of journeying together in the truth for the cause of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So this morning we've seen that uh, in this letter of Third John, walking in the truth means gospel faithfulness and it brings great joy and that truth walkers are characterized by love they reject what's evil and they imitate what is good two characteristics of faithful Christians are walking in the truth and love truth and love let me close with a great passage about truth and love from John's first letter John chapter 4 Verses 10 and 11. Here's the truth, and this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What great truth. And then the love, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me pray for us. Dear God, thank you that we know what the truth is. It's that you've loved us and you've sent Jesus that we might have eternal life. Thank you for life in Christ. And thank you that you enable us to love one another. And we pray that you would enable us to love each other deeply and generously as you've loved us. For your honor, for the good of your people and your church, for your glory we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.